You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same John Donne. Deign at my hands this crown of prayer and praise, weaved in my lone devout melancholy, thou which of good hast, yea, art treasury, all unchanging, unchanged, ancient of days. But do not with a vile crown of frail bays reward my muse's white sincerity, but what thy thorny crown gained, that give me, a crown of glory which doth flower always. The ends crown our works, but thou crownst our ends, for at our ends begin our endless rest. The first, last end, now zealously possessed, with a strong, sober thirst my soul attends. Tis time that heart and voice be lifted high, salvation to all that will is nigh. Annunciation Salvation to all that will is nigh, that all, which always is all, everywhere, which cannot sin, yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die, lo, faithful virgin, yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. And though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he'll wear, taken from thence, flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest, conceived. Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark, and shuttest in little room immensity, cloistered in thy dear womb. Nativity immensity cloistered in thy dear womb now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment there he hath made himself to his intent weak enough now into our world to come but oh for thee for him hath the inn no room yet lay him in this stall and from the orient stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effects of Herod's jealous general doom. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eye, how he which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie? Was not his pity towards thee wondrous high, that would have need to be pitied by thee? Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go, with his kind mother, who partakes thy woe. Temple. With his kind mother, who partakes thy woe, Joseph, turn back. 
See where your child doth sit, blowing, yea, blowing out those sparks of wit which himself on the doctors did bestow. The word but lately could not speak, and lo, it suddenly speaks wonders. Whence comes it that all which was and all which should be writ, a shallow-seeming child should deeply know? His godhood was not sole to his manhood, nor had time mellowed him to this ripeness. But as for one which hath a long task, tis good with the son to begin his business. He in his age's mourning thus began by miracles exceeding power of man. Crucifying by miracles exceeding power of man, he faith in some, envy in some, begat. For what weak spirits admire, ambitious hate. In both affections many to him ran. But, oh, the worst are most. They will and can, alas, and do unto the immaculate, whose creature fate is, now prescribe a fate measuring self-life's infinity to span, nay, to an inch. Lo, where condemned he bears his own cross with pain, yet by and by, when it bears him, he must bear more and die. Now thou art lifted high, draw me to thee, and at thy death, giving such liberal dole, Moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul. Resurrection Moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul shall, Though she now be in extreme degree too stony hard, And yet too fleshly, Be freed by that drop from being starved, hard, or foul, And life by this death abled shall control death, whom thy death slew, nor shall to me fear of first or last death bring misery, if in thy life-book my name thou enroll. Flesh in that long sleep is not putrefied, but made that there of which and for which it was, nor can by other means be glorified. May then sin's sleep and death soon from me pass, that waked from both, I again risen may salute the last and everlasting day. Ascension Salute the last and everlasting day, joy at the uprising of this sun and sun, ye whose true tears or tribulation have purely washed or burnt your drossy clay. Behold, the highest, parting hence away, lightens the dark clouds which he treads upon. Nor doth he by ascending show alone, but first he, and he first, enters the way. O strong ram, which hast battered heaven for me, mild lamb, which with thy blood hast marked the path, brightest torch, which shinest that I the way may see. O with thy own blood quench thy own just wrath, and if thy Holy Spirit my muse did raise, 
deign at my hands this crown of prayer and praise. Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University, where we are currently being afflicted by oak pollen. Uh, Joining me today is Michael Farmer in Woodstock, Georgia. How's the oak pollen there? I don't know if it's oak or not, because I'm not allergic to it, but I am told that Atlanta is having its worst pollen year in decades. So, bad news for people who are allergic to pollen. Or who don't want their cars to be yellow. (laughs) It looks like someone's been cleaning erasers over them. You know, I I completely forgot about it because in in Minnesota they don't have pollen. And and so I I looked out the other day and my my navy blue car is just uh, covered in this yellow, uh, disgusting pollen. If you're not from Georgia or another region that gets pollen, uh, listener, uh, thank your lucky stars. Uh, not joining us today is Nathan Gilmore for various reasons, uh, technological. I don't think the pollen got him, but... Uh, Maybe uh, it did. <laughs> we don't know. There's lots of trees where he's at. Uh, and that would be Nathan Gilmore, uh, professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. What do we want to say about uh, what's on the network before we dive into it? Well, by the time this airs, there'll be a new Christian Humanist Profiles with me interviewing the singer-songwriter Burke Ingrafia. Uh, He sent me his record kind of out of nowhere. I think he's a listener to this podcast. And I really loved the record, and I had a great time talking to him. And I hope uh, our listeners will also enjoy talking to him, uh, uh, listening to me talk to him. And we'll also go and pay for the record because, like all musicians right now, uh, he needs your money. Yeah. We've had really good luck with musicians listening to us talk about music and feeling good about that. It's true. I I was hoping after last week's episode I would get some sort of word from the beyond from Gene Eugene, but so far no luck. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Also, uh, earlier uh, earlier today, actually, I recorded uh, an episode of City of Man with Coyle Neil and Jordan Poss uh, about the first book in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, and we're going to be following up with the other two, uh, Paralandra and That Hideous Strength in coming weeks. But I, I, I don't know when they have that scheduled to drop, though, so... Sorry, I can't. I can't give you a heads up on that, dear listener. Well, we we record those country music episodes, and then Coyle drops them at his leisure six months later. So I'm always uh, I'm always surprised and pleased when one makes it to the air. And then I think, what did I say in that episode? I have no recollection of it. Yeah, yeah. Their their political episodes are always really fresh and timely, and their episodes about other things will often include incidental references to stuff that happened like you know eight months ago. It's as bad as the core curriculum, and I, I've really got to talk to everybody about recording episodes of the core curriculum because people always say, "Oh, and it's December here," and I, I, I always think, "Guys, this isn't going to drop until March." <laughs> Stop talking about the weather. It's hard. It's hard. It's 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 the it's the central you know element of of human small talk. I suppose it is. Well, speaking of things that are not elements of ordinary human small talk, uh, 
is John Donne? That was a terrible segue, but I'm going to go with it. Uh, we are talking about John Donne today, uh, English poet uh, in, uh, in the 17th century. Uh, most of his life spent uh, in, in career in the 17th century. In particular, uh, his poem uh, entitled La Corona, which we're, uh, we're actually really excited about. Uh, it's, uh, it's just a great poem if you're not familiar with it. Um, I recommend it. If you love his holy sonnets, then you'll love La Corona because it's, well, we'll get into it. No spoilers, I guess. Um, though, with all of his theological poetry, we need to, I think, an, uh, recognize something that's lurking in his background, uh, which is that Dunn was reared in a devout English Catholic family at a time when that was difficult and dangerous. Uh, very difficult and very dangerous. Uh, and yet, in the last 10 years of his life, he was dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, which was one of the most visible positions in the Protestant Church of England. Um, I don't know that we really need to track all the subtleties of Dunn's religious evolution, uh, but that trajectory of having uh, a very strong uh, Catholicism in his rootedness, shaping a lot of his imagination and his language and his feelings, uh, and his uh, his personal the shape of his personal devotion. Um, having that, but then also uh, he's he's an Anglican churchman, right? Uh, uh, writes uh, tracts and other polemical uh, kind of polemical works. Uh, against a distinctive, uh, distinctive Catholic positions, um, some of that I think, you know, f as part of kind of seeking a patron, um, but uh, but it also, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm I'm going to be charitable and uh, assume that uh, he was also s saying what he believed. Um, he had uh, a a powerful preaching ministry in that last 10 years of his life at St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, and uh, I'd like to not think that he was a charlatan the whole time, just saying things that were expedient. But what do you, what, what do you see in La Corona, uh, Michael, that would either be a touchstone to where he began his faith and the, uh, the faith that he had at the end of his life. I, um, I, I, I don't know if I'm reading into it, uh, because I was going to become Catholic in the next few weeks and now it'll be, you know, some time in the future. Um, but I, I definitely see the second poem in this cycle, Annunciation as being a poem of Marian devotion, uh, now, you don't have to be Catholic to be devoted to Mary, but it is a kind of distinctive uh, practice among Catholics. Uh, and in particular, I wondered, uh, let's see where, where this is. It's, it's in the second one. He says, um, though he there, Jesus, can take no sin, nor thou give. And he's talking to Mary and he's talking about Jesus being in her womb. 
that that phrase nor thou give could mean that mary is sinless which is the doctrine of the catholic church or it could just mean that her sinfulness uh is not able to be imparted to jesus when he's in the womb and i thought that that ambiguity was very interesting uh if you're talking about how catholic john Donne was even in his later life yeah yeah that that's one of the parts that really kind of stood out to me as a um a kind of a telling ambiguity if that makes sense yeah um the fact that it that it's that way uh the fact that it's phrased that way um yeah it you know it, done done at the end of his life and done decades earlier could probably both have said that uh, within their context um, and meant it devoutly that's that's really interesting to me david can you can you tell me how devout a catholic done was because i mean maybe it's just my education which was done at a evangelical institution but i have always assumed that his catholic was his catholicism was not particularly strongly felt and that when he falls into his rake's existence between his Catholicism and his Anglicanism, it was kind of an expression of his uh, uh, lukewarmness in his Catholicism. Is that is that a mischaracterization of Dunn? I, I cannot speak to the that personal level. Um, from what uh, from what I have read, his family was uh, he had a very devout background now whether once he was you know a young man you know free from the nest uh you know he might have you know he might have gone off and been a hellion as you know many young folk who come from devout families are um and yet carried around with him um some of the the language the affect of what comes before uh so you know, I, 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 I can't look into his soul, but, but I know that his, at least, at least the context in which he was raised was devout enough Catholic that it, you know, it affected his educational, um, opportunities. Um, it, it was a family that accepted, uh, what went with being Catholic in England in the reign of Elizabeth. Right. Well, as you suggested at the top of the show, there weren't a lot of casual Catholics in 17th century England. Why on earth would you bother? Yeah, that's my point. That, 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 that's, that's really my point. And so, I, I really suspect it was a gap in my education that I, I never heard anybody really talk about how important Dunn's Catholicism was. I, I mean, looking back, it seems obvious that it must have been at least somewhat important or he would have just renounced it. Um, and yet I, I mostly hear of Dunn described as converting, not from Catholicism necessarily, but from a life of, um, you know, dissipation. Yeah. I mean, maybe I, I mean, that, that does seem to be kind of the, the trajectory that that's most often talked about. And I think that one's there, but then you have poems, uh, poems like, uh, Holy Sonnet 18, show me, dear Christ, thy spouse so bright and clear. Uh, what is it she which on the other shore goes richly painted or which robbed and tore laments and mourns in Germany? Um, you know, it's basically a sonnet, you know, asking Christ to show him. Now, which of these churches <laughs> mm -hmm. do I need to be pursuing? Do I need to be aligning myself with? 
he also has uh, a poem called The Cross, which is an extended poetic defense of the continued use of a visible physical crucifix as part of devotion. Hmm. Um, that at least puts him in uh, in opposition to a more Genevan-inflected uh, Protestantism. Uh, and he has uh, his, uh, his long poem, kind of like La Corona, um, a long poem called A Litany, which uh, is very clearly modeled on um, Catholic liturgical forms, um, including, though in some ways modified for a Protestant theology of the role of saints, um, nonetheless includes references to the prayers of saints on our behalf. Huh. So, I, you know, I, th- I think if w- once you kind of start looking for that I think you'll find you'll, you'll find some you'll find bits of that in Dunn I'm not saying that necessarily that he was a, a you know a closet Catholic or something like that but he seems to have uh, wanted to synthesize uh, a good deal of what ca- might have characterized the faith in which he was raised with uh, what he found himself in at the end of his life which, from, from my understanding, is, is kind of the definitive Anglican impulse, right? And the, that yeah. Anglicanism has always been explained to me, especially in its early years, as being Catholic practice with um, Protestant doctrine. Yeah. Is that, I, is that, a, is that yeah. a misrepresentation? Um, I, I, think that's, I think that's a really... I think that's a strong representation of what... Um, a number of the most prominent sort of formers of of Anglicanism um, came to. Um, I mean, there there were there are different you know there there's there's different forces in the Church of England. There's you know you know people like Bishop Laud who were very very much about you know kind of a high church, um, high liturgy, high view of sacraments, um, and then you have uh, you have others who who are are very are are very different um i was reading a a sermon preached before i can't it was one of the one of the georges um by a bishop that was basically a sermon against episcopacy preached by a bishop i wasn't really sure (laughs) what it was so yeah, I mean, there, there's some diversity there, but uh, I, th- I think there's a very strong core in in the Church of England that wants to find a continuity in the forms of worship, even if um, even as the theology that um, those forms clothe uh, is articulated differently. Yeah, and I'll just admit that I don't. I don't have much experience with Anglicanism and it, it's, it's a group of people who I kind of jumped over on my, on my climb higher in, in church structure. So I, I just went from Presbyterianism to Roman Catholicism without, uh, without making that stopover in Anglicanism that some people make. So I, I, it's, it's yep. not a, it's not a tradition I'm incredibly familiar with. Yeah, I, I have a number of Anglican friends, and I'm trying to, you know, kind of understand and appreciate them more. Um, 
anyway, I, I regard Dunn as, as, well, you know, I, I regard a lot of authors as kind of my no longer alive friends. <laughs> sure. So I guess Dunn is one of those. You might even say he's praying for you, David. I might even. Uh, what is a corona? And how's that image informing the symbolism and the shape of this poem? Sure, it's it's a crown. Uh, corona is just Latin for crown, and it gets used in a variety of other scientific words uh, to describe things that have a crown shape. So, uh, but when he uses it, he's certainly talking about a crown, and the poem itself forms a kind of crown. It's a sonnet cycle. I believe there's uh, six sonnets. And the last line of each sonnet forms the first line of the next sonnet. And then the last line of the last sonnet is the first line of the first sonnet. So you have this kind of overlapping cycle that if you if you printed it out and tied it together, it would look very much like a crown that somebody could wear on their head. So that's the kind of joke. You know, there's often a joke in Dunn. Seven. What were you saying? Did I, did I, there's seven, 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 seven. Uh, sonnets, not six. Shows you how much attention I pay. <laughs> so so this isn't about how he had a beer on the beach. No, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, and uh, Sonnet 1, which is the only one that's not attached to a specific event from the life of Christ, uh, uses a lot of crown imagery. And in particular, it contrasts the crown that would have been given to the victor victorious poet with the crown of thorns that Christ wears. And Dunn very self-consciously refuses the former in favor of the latter. He calls the former a vile crown of frail bays. Nice. No no poet no poet laureate for for Dunn. Right, right. The only laureate he needs is Christ's death, at least in theory. I'm always I'm always a little suspect when Dunn talks about humility because Dunn's poetry is so self-conscious and it's yeah. so um oh, it's so filigreed that when he starts talking about how, oh, you know, this is just the humble, the humble work of a humble man. It, it's really not. He worked very hard on this and he's clearly very proud of it. Uh, and so th to the degree he, in which he's, he's asking to forfeit poetic respect, uh, I don't think it's a full forfeit, if that makes sense. Yeah. There's a, there's a similar poem by, oh shoot, I think it might be Marvell. Uh -huh. uh, if I remember rightly, um, who has a similar conceit about um, taking the flowered crowns that he'd woven for his shepherdesses and weaving them into a crown for Christ, but uh -huh. then realizing as he does it that there is this um, serpent of his own conceit that's that he's inadvertently woven into the crown along with the flowers. Uh, that is Marvell. I don't remember the name of the poem, yeah, but I know the one you're talking about. And I, I find that to be a much more honest way to do what Dunn is trying to do here. I mean, I don't mean to, I don't mean to disparage Dunn, but uh, this this poem is not a a simple crown of paper. Like this is a very meticulously constructed, very difficult, really, uh, set of poems that he's created here. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's too baroque to say, "Oh, I just tossed this old thing off. I hope That's it's right. nice." 
<laughs> yeah, you know, Anne Bradstreet does something very similar at the beginning of her book of poems, where she, she has a, a very famous poem, I think her most famous, called The Author to Her Book, where she talks about how her metaphor is of a child, and this this is a deformed child that she's given birth to, and she's embarrassed to have it go out into public. And I believe it from her because her verse is comparably simple and humble. I don't get that from Dunn at any stage in his career, and certainly not in this poem. Yeah. So, crowning. Uh, crowns of poets, crowns, crowns of thorns, crowns of glory. Um, the poem itself as a crown. Yeah. The, that that imagery is is all there. The uh, incarnation you, you you mentioned this that that all but that first stanza or that first sonnet uh, are parts of narratives of the life of Christ, which the incarnation of the word uh, seems to be the big one one of the big central themes. Uh, that it goes through this poem and and a lot of his poems uh he's he's fascinated by this idea of uh god taking on uh human nature um but most of his material in this poem is bits of scenes from the gospel narratives as opposed to i don't know more kind of nicene or you know uh, uh, or other kinds of of uh meditations so what work is he doing with those stories in these in this theological sure and first it's probably best just to mention which stories he's using so poem two is the annunciation poem three is the nativity poem uh four is the teaching at the temple i don't think there's a one word uh expression for that uh, poem five is the crucifixion. Poem six is the resurrection, and poem seven is the ascension. Uh, on on the one hand, that's a fairly standard list of important scenes from the life of Christ, right? I mean, those are those are ones that you would expect. They're all other than the temple um, important feast days in in the Christian church. In fact, I think in all Christian churches. Uh, and yet, there's something a little strange about those six because none of them. And I just worked this out, so maybe I'm way off. But as far as I can tell, none of them other than maybe the temple featured Jesus actively doing very much, right? So the Annunciation, he is not present yet. Uh, the Nativity, he's present, but he's a baby. And all the action is being done by Mary and Joseph and the three wise men and Herod. Uh, the temple, even there... Most of what Jesus does at the temple is listen and ask questions, if you go read the biblical account. The crucifixion, of course, while work is being done, he is, uh, at least physically, quite passive. It's uh, in the name. <laughs> right, right. The The resurrection, I, I suppose you could say he's doing something in that he is rising, raising himself from the dead or being risen from the dead. But even that, in the biblical account, all the action takes place off the page. And in the ascension, he is he's rising to heaven, and that too has the effect of being something that's being done to him or for him by God the Father. And because this question was supposed to go to Nathan, I haven't really thought about it further, but it does strike me that there is a certain passivity in the scenes he's chosen. There's no healing of the blind, there's no raising of Lazarus, there's no um there's no Sermon on the Mount. There's nothing that that I think of as being 
like the big active scenes in Christ's ministry, these are all these are all the moments when Godhead touches humanity and then um, just kind of hangs there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the humanity that receives human experience, if that makes sense. Uh, you the, the humanity that does or the divinity that does? The, the, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the, the divinity that receives humanity and then receives human experience through that humanity right i i find it so fascinating that like there's no temptation here uh-huh right there's no baptism those are critical scenes right they're they're in you know they're in all three of the synoptics and the baptism is uh is alluded to in, in john's gospel as well um the yeah i mean no miracles no Lazarus, no preaching, no teaching, and even in the temple, I mean, this is this is just fascinating. Uh, the the word, but lately could not speak, and lo, it suddenly speaks wonders. When comes it that all which was and all which should be writ, a shallow seeming child should deeply know? All right, so he's he's remarkably smart, this kid. But his godhead was not sold to his manhood nor had time mellowed him to this ripeness. But as for one which hath a long task, tis good when the son to begin his business, with the son to begin his business, he in his age's morning thus began. Right? So that, yes, he's intelligent, but it's not because his human soul has been somehow re been replaced by a divine soul. Right. As if he simply has, you know, of course he knows all the answers. He has omniscience. He has omniscience. But Dunn is, I mean, Dunn is orthodox in his Christology. Um, Christ has a human soul. Um, that also requires learning and maturity. And if he's smart right now, it's because he's like a workman who got up early. Right. Right. <laughs> he's, he, he, he began learning in his youth. Um, what we're seeing here is his humanity, not his all-knowing deity. That's interesting. Now, one other thing that occurs to me, and I'm really stretching here, but everything he mentions is one of the mysteries of the rosary. Now, there's a lot of other stuff in the rosary huh. that's not in here, but every single one of these is is in the rosary. And a lot of stuff that Jesus does is not part of the rosary. Right. So I, I don't know what to yeah. make of that. I know that St. Dominic invented the rosary, or at least I think he did. So it was probably in place by the time Dunn was uh, was born. But I, um, I, I've, you know, I've been doing the rosary lately as a as a pre-Catholic. And it, it does strike me that all of these are mysteries of the rosary. Interesting. Yeah, it, it was there. Um, and it was a practice of English Catholics. Um enough so that uh, it's something that Spencer makes fun of in the Fairy oh. Queen. <laughs> How nice of him. <laughs> but, 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 but yeah, but that, that, that sort of general awareness of right. that trope, and But uh, David, if there. you take out the luminous mysteries, which were uh, added by Pope John Paul II, all the other ones, I mean, there's, there's very little that Jesus would have been involved in that wasn't um, something Dunn mentioned. So here, here are the, here are the uh, 15 mysteries of the rosary before uh, St. Saint Paul, Saint, uh, excuse me, uh, Pope St. John Paul II added the Luminous Mysteries. The Annunciation, 
the visitation, which is not part of the poem, the nativity, the presentation of the Lord, which is part of the nativity uh, section of the poem, uh, Jesus at the temple, and then the sorrowful mysteries are all parts of the crucifixion, the agony of the garden, the scourging at the pillar, crowning with thorns, carrying the cross, and then the crucifixion itself. Uh, and then the glorious mysteries, the resurrection, the ascension. And then after that are things that Jesus would no longer have been present for, uh, physically present. The descent of the Holy Ghost, the assumption of Mary into heaven, and Mary being crowned as queen of heaven and earth. So I, 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 I don't know if any work has been done on Dunn and the Rosary, but I, I, if you want to argue that this is in some way as a Catholic poem, I think the Rosary might be a good place to start. Which one is the visitation? Is that Mary visiting Elizabeth or is it? It is, okay, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I, I have racked uh, the second stanzas for um, for hints of a Magnificat, but uh, I don't I don't see those verbal echoes there. Um, yeah, I don't either. But there are definitely wise men in number three. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Cool. Uh, yeah, this uh, this meditation on incarnation. I I, th- I think you're right, and I think that's the, that's that's the place to start. Is this selection of events? And one on one hand, you could look at it and say, "Oh, well, this is fairly standard," but look closer. Um, there are fascinating omissions, um, and what it leads to is a uh, is a God become man who is most mostly undergoing the human not doing as the human um there is language of what christ accomplishes and what christ uh does through these experiences and yet you know the passion is the passion because he is he is passive he is receiving and so forth so well and and the the, this poem is so interested in paradox that i i think that that's probably on purpose because in the first in the first sonnet God is very, very active, right? And and actually, Dunn describes even even the crucifixion in very active terms. So all of this seeming passivity m- might be very much like the seeming shallowness of the boy at the temple, right? Yes. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the 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 paradox is always there. That's Dunn's favorite thing. He's like he's like Chesterton in that regard. He he loves it when he's able to say things that shouldn't make sense. Uh, because he, you know, they're they're always pointing in the direction that that Dunn sees as the deep of the mystery. Mm-hmm. Among the different permutations that Dunn is working in this poem uh, are shifts of uh, the addressee or the auditor. Um, there's a there's a thou throughout the poem, but who the thou is is not the same in every stanza. So let's talk about who Dunn is speaking to and what difference that makes. Yeah, as you say, it shifts. So in the first poem, he is speaking to God, the Father, or perhaps the Godhead. In the second poem about the Annunciation, he's speaking to Mary. In the third person, uh, in the third, excuse me, in the third sonnet, he begins by talking about Mary, uh, talking to Mary, but he very quickly uh talks about Joseph, talks to Joseph. In, uh, in the temple, he talks about Joseph. In 
the crucifixion, he talks directly to Jesus as he does in the resurrection. And, uh, and uh, in the ascension as well, he's, he's speaking to, to Jesus. So it, it actually moves from not Jesus to Jesus over the course of the poem. Yeah. There is also that one little uh, few lines at the end of three where he addresses his soul. Um, seest thou my soul with thy faith's eye? Um, yes, that's true. Actually, um, I, I spoke uh, wrongly. The nativity is not addressed to Joseph; it's addressed to uh, Dunn's soul. You think it's you think it's Dunn's soul throughout the entire stanza? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true, because he says, "But oh, for thee, for him hath the end no room." Yeah, so that must be Mary and Joseph. And it borrows the first line from stanza two, immensity cloistered in thy cloistered dear in thy dear womb. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's so it's but it's it's so interesting because it makes the it makes the play confusing if you're reading it quickly, um, because the pronoun stays the same, but the gaze of the persona, so to speak, keeps shifting. Well, and, and it's doing something very similar as what's happening grammatically with the last line of one poem and the first line of the next. At, at one point, I'm looking it up here. Yeah, so it's at the end of, at one point, at the end of, of Sonnet 5, he says, Now thou art lifted up, draw me to thee, and at thy death, giving such liberal dole, moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul. Moist in that sentence is a... Uh, is a is a verb yeah at the that is the line moist with one drop of thy blood my dry soul which begins sonnet six moist with one drop of thy blood my dry soul shall though she now be an extreme degree too stony hard and yet too fleshly be freed by that drop there moist is an adjective yeah uh, modifying modifying his soul so I, I it the 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 complexity even beyond the kind of theological complexity even the grammatical complexity of this sonnet cycle is really really remarkable yeah my wife actually wrote a paper on it uh for a grammar class of all things um and and that that shift of uh part of speech in the in the in the doubled lines uh, was uh, one of the features that that she talked about. Um, it's it, it's so interesting the way that he's using that grammar, as you say, uh, to to shift the perspective of which side of um, divine action you're standing on, or or you know, something something like that. Uh, the camera is on this side. Uh, and then it shifts to the other side, but the same language is there. Right. There's something constantly changing and yet something not changing at all, which fits in with his description of God in the first poem. Uh, he says, all, un, all changing, unchanged, ancient of days. Another, another very complex sentence, if you, or that's a phrase, not a sentence, if you think about it, because what he's saying is, unchanged of day ancient of days who changes all things but he says it all changing unchanged ancient of days such that it sounds like god is both changing and unchanged uh 
Yeah. So it makes sense that the poems would somehow both change and not change as we go through them. Yeah. Very. It, it's fascinating. I mean, and since it starts off as, well, he calls it Dane at my hands, this crown of prayer and praise. Right. It, that, that's what he calls it. This is a crown of prayer and praise. But the constantly shifting thee and thou, um, you know, depending on on uh, what I, I think this is maybe another one of those areas in which um, who's talking, you know, done done in his youth or done in the now, um, uh, because done for done in his youth, many of these stanzas, maybe all of these stanzas. He could have called prayers, but I don't know if uh, the Dean of St. Paul's could necessarily call all of these stanzas prayers. Sure. <laughs> Do we know if he was Dean of St. Paul's when he wrote this? Um, let's see. I don't actually know the date of La Corona. Uh, he was Dean of St. Paul's in the last 10 years of his life. But I, I'm, I, I don't actually know off the top of my head when, uh, when this was. Because my understanding is we don't know when a lot of the poems were written. In fact, most of the poems we don't really have a, any kind of sure date on. To the, to the point where I, I think people aren't sure whether his erotic poems were written before or after his conversion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, a lot of times there is this, you know, young Rake, Randy, Jack Dunn, who's, you know, talking about wishing he was a fish swimming between ladies' legs, (laughs) you know, and then he gets converted and, you know, he's suddenly, you know, pious and metaphysical, you know, Dean Dunn, Dr. Dunn you know, preaching about the, the death of death and the death of Christ and, you know, with his naughty holy sonnets, K-N-O-T-T-Y, not N-A-U-G-H-T-Y. Um, but we don't actually know enough about the chronology of his poetry to be able to say it's that neat. And almost certainly it wasn't, right? Because conversions are almost never that neat. This one interested this this poem in, in particular is interesting because much of his devotional poetry, not all of it, because this is an example of an exception, but much of his devotional poetry uses the language of uh, romance, uh, of passion, um, even of sexuality, um, to describe spiritual things. Um, using the language that he would have addressed to a lover, um, to God. Right. Uh, most most famously or infamously, "Batter my heart, three person God," where he says, "I won't be chased until you ravish ravish me." Yeah. It, that's yeah. It's very common in Dunn's Christian verse for him to use language that would have been very at home in that other Jack the Rakes, Jack the Rake verse. Um, La Corona is an exception. I don't, I don't see any of that here. Um, but I, I think part of that is because he's, for the most part, not interested in talking about himself. Uh, there's also, uh, along with Incarnation 
and we should expect this, and, and it's, it's been previewed by uh, which events he discusses, but uh, his sacred verse is very often focused on the Christian good news of salvation through redemption. Uh, what are some useful, beautiful, um, intriguing ways that he brings those topics up in this poem? Well, this is another question that I was not asked to prep, so I'm going to give you a couple of things I liked about uh, about his treatment of salvation, and I'll let you uh, respond as you will. I uh, th- there's a great reversal in uh, in sonnet five. He says, "This is the crucifixion sonnet, where condemned he bears his own cross with pain." Yet by and by, when it bears him, he must bear more and die. And that, that strikes me as a very, very particular, uh, particularly done line. Because what we have is, first, Christ is bearing the cross, walking it uh, to the, the hill of the skull, Golgotha. By the way, that's one of the, that's one of the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary. Then the cross bears him. Right. Because he has to go up on the cross. But when he when he's up on the cross, when the cross is bearing him, he's actually bearing more than he was when he was merely bearing the cross because he's bearing the sins of all of uh, of all of humanity. So I I, uh, I really thought that was a neat, uh, a, a neat little reversal uh, and maybe maybe my favorite wordplay in the whole poem. Uh, in the resurrection, he uses a, uh, a construction that I think will be familiar, especially to our listeners who have some encounter with Eastern Orthodoxy. He says that life by this death abled shall control death whom thy death slew. Um, the Eastern Orthodox, their Easter song says, uh, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling death by death. And so there's a kind of judo move that, that Christ yeah. performs on death. He seems to be losing. He seems to be passive, perhaps. And yet he, he's actually won the whole time. And, and so there's, there's a kind of trick he's playing on death for our salvation there, which is, uh, again, nice. In that same uh, sonnet, he, he does a move that he does in his famous poem, Death Be Not Proud, where he, he says that... Um, May, may then sin sleep and death soon from me pass, that waked from both, I again risen, may salute the last and everlasting day. So there, there's some sense in which now that Christ has died to trample death, Dunn looks forward to dying so that he too can conquer death and conquer sin and salute the last and everlasting day. He, he, uh, he, can, he can enter eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. So those are just some things I, I noticed about his treatment of salvation. It's not a, a, a very uh, inclusive account of everything he's doing here. What, what have I left out, David? Yeah, I, I love, the, I love the, the way that he, he brings in all of these different elements or facets uh, of redemption. Um, you know, at, since he is a Protestant, you would expect him to bring in uh, be bringing in uh, some kind of, uh, you know, penal the the penal substitution element, and it is there. Uh, oh, the worst are most; they will and can, right? Uh, describing uh, describing humans. Oh, the worst are most; they will and can, and alas, do unto the immaculate whose creature fate is now prescribed a fate. 
uh, that that idea of you know the one who is sinless is prescribed a fate or is given a uh, a verdict is is assigned a, a penalty measuring self life's infinity to a span nay to an inch so in undertaking humanity uh, he also undertakes the ability to suffer and to die for this prescribed fate which was due to those who were not immaculate <laughs> as he is uh, so the immaculate for the sake of the sinful um, the unlimited taking on limit so that he might bear that which is prescribed as the fate of those well no, the fate the fate thing there is important to me David because he he says that uh, cr fate is Christ's creature Christ created fate and yet these people prescribe a fate to him but if you connect it back to the Annunciation poem uh, it, it seems that Jesus has had this in mind before time was created because he's already thinking about Mary as the vehicle for his incarnation before he even creates time. And so the fate that these people have decided for him is a fate that he decided for himself long, long, long before they dreamed of anything. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Um, yeah, I, I love that that part of the second one. Um, air by the spheres, time was created. Uh, thou wast, thou Mary wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest conceived. Uh, that that's that's really uh, that's really nice. It's very uh, Mary. Did you know? But less uh, less annoying. <laughs> Yeah. This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Yeah, I mean it's that it's that same it's that same move, but um, I think a little less con a little less patronizing. <laughs> well, I I think even Mark Lowry would agree that John Donne is a better poet than Mark Lowry. <laughs> Lowry's way better at stand-up comedy, though. That's fair. That's fair. I I can't even imagine what a John Donne stand-up routine would look like. Man, we'd all be lost. You'd need a PowerPoint to follow it, that's for sure. I think it might look a lot like the flea. Yeah, that's true. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a funny poem in its way. Well, at the beginning, Dunn calls this poem the work of his, and I love this phrase, his, quote, alone devout melancholy, which I wanted on a t-shirt. Given that many of us uh, observe the Lenten season with kind of similar occasions of lone, devout melancholy, um, in what ways might this poem equip us to do that kind of thing fruitfully? That phrase stuck out to me too, David. Um, and and in, in some ways it feels oddly out of place. Like this is not a melancholy poem. And it's not even that lonely of a poem. As you mentioned, he's addressing people throughout it in fact different people so it's like he's he's crowded a small group of people around him even to say the poem so i mean maybe maybe the solution to your lone devout melancholy is to write a poem like la corona which is so intricate and so populated that uh that you don't even feel alone anymore that's interesting he's surrounded himself by people who are 
not visibly present and yet are are in many different senses present to him like all the other um like all the other paradoxes in this poem his lone devout melancholy turns out to be neither lone nor melancholy yeah but certainly devout (laughs) yeah there's there's a lot of devout going on um i wondered about that word melancholy there's a one of the early modern associations of it and i guess it i guess it continues um we often these days link melancholy with depression particularly more narrowly but melancholy was uh in the early modern time um a broader concept that could also include some of the things that we today file under the heading of introversion yeah or like pensiveness maybe yeah yeah like uh like the pensées if i pronounce that right you you did huzzah good for me uh but that idea that the the melancholy person is not um may, may be inclined to you know sad and so the sort of sad and sober thoughts that we associate with uh with with depression but also inclined towards um, perhaps sustained deep thinking as well, uh, sustained meditation in 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 quiet, uh, and and even a preference for that. Um, there there's a there's a fashion for that in the 17th century of uh, of going off by yourself and thinking really really complicated <laughs> thoughts right um at, that's why their subtitles were longer than our entire books yeah uh a uh a faculty reading group uh that i'm part of is working through has been working through this semester uh a book of meditations uh by oh gosh i can't even remember uh, his name but he's he's a 16th century churchman of some sort and he wrote he wrote a book of prose meditations and each one of them is a very john dunn style similitude or metaphor is it thomas Trahern? maybe i i don't remember i i again i can't remember the name i i haven't picked up the book in weeks um and i was not familiar with it until we started working through it um but it, it was very much that same here's a deep thought now kind of go off by yourself and gnaw on that for a while well, yeah which is Dunn's modus operandi <laughs> yeah go read his devotions upon emergent occasions dear listener and you'll see um, all the crazy things that Dunn can gnaw on when he's by himself or I mean for that matter his sermons work the same way they kind of circle a point over and over again yeah do you know much about uh, the exercises of Ignatius Loyola? I know a little bit. What do you do? You have a specific question about them? I, I've not. Um, I've not read them. I just. I just sort of know about them. And there's uh, a couple of stanzas in here when Dunn is sort of not only retelling 
or imagining scenes from the Gospels, but also in some way inserting himself into them and addressing uh-huh. people in them. Um, I wondered if there might also be uh, some element of that going on as well, too, because he's... Um, I mean, th- those were also known. You know, the 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 presence of Jesuits and the devotional practices of Jesuits um, was very important to the sustaining of an English Catholic underground. Well, imagine, imagine the slap in the face that it would have been to Loyola for this guy to write up, write these poems using his method and then convert to Anglicanism. Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's his, it's his silent signal that he's not as Anglican as he seems. I'm so, I don't want to go, I don't want to go full Shakespeare was a Catholic on John. Brown. <laughs> I, I don't know enough to make that statement. You know, yeah, but I, I remember, you know, this is, I mean, Twitter is not representative of anybody ever. Um, except those who were, you know, on Twitter. Except the devil. <laughs> but I remember, oh gosh, it's been I don't, maybe maybe a couple months back. I remember seeing a thread of uh, of folks who uh, I think that what they generally had in common is that they were evangelicals who had um, shifted to more chi- high church traditions. Um, in some cases, either e- e- in some cases, e- Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, uh, Roman Catholicism, or Church of England. Right. And the big three. Yeah. And they were talking and, and on Twitter, many of these folks were, they were talking wistfully about, uh, missing evangelical praise and worship. Not my experience, but Hey, yeah. But it was like somebody has had that. <laughs> so, so I wondered if, if, uh, I don't know, maybe Dunn had some kind of similar, you know, even the, even as his theological convictions, um, may have some important alterations that the the mode of his devotion well right and that that ignatian that ignatian method there's nothing that about it that's only catholic there's no reason a protestant couldn't use that method of prayer and get uh you know really helpful results out of it so I i don't want to be too uh too exclusive there about ignatius of loyola but i i to the degree that to the degree that Dunn was influenced by him, I think it, it must have insulted the founder of the Society of Jesus that Dunn became a uh, an Anglican. You know, know, the only reason the Jesuits exist is to get rid of Protestantism. <laughs> awesome. Well, as we round out this episode, uh, is there anything else here that you uh, you wanted to point out as um, worth mulling over? Uh, a, a reason why our listeners would uh, would find this poem a worthwhile thing to to undertake. Yeah, just a small one. Um, I've I've talked about a number of the paradoxes in this poem. There's another really good one at the beginning of Sonnet Six on the Resurrection. Moist with one drop of blood, my dry soul shall, though she now be in extreme degree, too stony hard and yet too fleshly. And I really like the notion that the sinful soul is both made of stone and overly made of flesh. That in, 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 in a sense, it's both too unyielding and it yields too easily. That is uh, nice. And, and, and that, that somehow sanctification involves 
becoming both stonier and more fleshly, yielding to the right things and um, being unyielding to the wrong things. I really, I really liked that little uh, little analogy. That is nice. Well, dear listeners, we have hardly plumbed the depths of this naughty, paradoxical, dense, and melancholically devout poem. Uh, I recommend that you read it yourself and see what you find, because there's a lot in it. But that is all the time we have for this week. What are we? Do you know what we're talking about next week, Michael? Is Nathan up? No, I don't. Nathan, Nathan will be up, and so we'll be talking about something of his choice. Uh, I'm not sure he knows what it'll be yet. Listeners, I'm sorry. We've had uh, we've had some trouble the last uh, month or so telling you in advance what we're talking about. But I don't even know how many people do the reading in advance or do the reading at all. <laughs> so maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, maybe not. We just we just like to have a plan. So at least you know somebody knows that somebody has a plan. When we do, when I listen to podcasts, once I hear that it's wrapping up, I usually turn it off. Although I guess if it's a show that announces what they're doing the next week, um, I do I do tune in for that. All right. Well, here's the wrap up. So if you are one like uh, Michael Farmer who turns it off uh, before this, um, I guess that's your cue. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. If you want to send us any feedback, you can post that on the show notes on our blog, ChristianHumanist.org. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook. We're also on Twitter, uh, CH uh, Podcast, I think. CH Radio Network. CH Radio Network. That's right. So, you know, if you want to tweet at all of us collectively also many of us individually not just on the chp but other shows on the uh, christian humanist radio network are also on twitter in the meanwhile i wish you all grand weeks uh, as i said we're a show on the christian humanist radio network our press liaison is Kristen philippic and our uh, editor is michael farmer and so i'm david on behalf of michael and the absent nathan let your sin be strong let your faith be stronger.